Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Dr. Ron Grimm has been a geographer for over 40 years. After receiving his PhD in geography from the University of Maryland, Ron embarked on a career that included stops at the National Archives of the United States, the Library of Congress, and the Leventhal Map and Education Center at the Boston Public Library. That's nothing to sneeze at, folks. On today's episode, Ron joins me to discuss his long career as a geographer working with maps at these prestigious institutions. Geography is the study of humanity's relationship with the Earth and its landscape, something that maps help to illuminate. As you'll hear on today's show, maps are powerful teaching tools that can help us understand our place in the world, or at least the way we imagine it. Ron is helping us here at the Washington Library evaluate the Richard H. Brown Revolutionary War map collection as we prepare to make it available for research and instruction. We've been fortunate to benefit from his expertise, just as others have over the last four decades. And be sure to stick around until the end of today's show. Ron and I discuss a criminal caper involving a nefarious map dealer and Ron's detective work which led to the recovery of a map by Samuel Day Champlain. Now before we begin, just a quick hello to all our listeners. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to tell your friends and your enemies. And now, let's chart a geographer's career with Ron Grimm. So I guess we should start then right at the top. You are trained as a geographer. And one of the things I wanted to know is, what do professional geographers do? Well, geographers do a wide range of studies. Um, I think simply put, at least in the past, they've looked at places, Mm -hmm. and they've looked at what we would say are spatial relations. How do phenomena in one place relate to the same phenomena in another? Um, But I think when I got started or when I was thinking about uh, going into geography, I was really thinking about places and what they were like and mm-hmm. how they were characterized. Were there any particular places that interest you while you were getting started or thinking about getting started? Um, I'd say generally the, the United States mm-hmm. because I had traveled extensively there. And I was also thinking about Latin America as a possible area of concentration. So when you began your study then, and you eventually earned a PhD in geography, what was, what was your project? I mean, what did you work on to earn that particular degree? Well, when I went into graduate school in geography, I was coming from a bachelor's where I had both a geography degree and a history degree. Okay. So for me, it was looking at geographies in the past and mm-hmm. trying to um, figure out reconstruct um, those those geographies from an older time period. Mm-hmm. So I went to University of Maryland, and um, they didn't have an historical geographer there when I started, but the, after the first year, uh, they brought in an historic, historical geographer, mm-hmm. and that became the focus of my studies in graduate school. I just wanted to note, too, that you you talked about your undergraduate degree. You went to Muskegon College, which is the same alma mater of uh, John Glenn, if I recall correctly. Exactly. I was, I mean, just to sort of emphasize the association, uh, they set up a scholarship in John Glenn's honor, and I was one of the first recipients of that scholarship. So I got to meet John and Annie Glenn. uh, Holy cow. (laughs) <laughs> you got to meet a real-life spaceman. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, my senior year, I worked in the college archives. Mm-hmm. And 
part of the materials that I processed were materials that came in when John Glenn came back from space and he came to New Concord, Ohio in celebration. Wow. And I think there, there was one letter where some, some student had commented, what's all this fuss about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he only orbited the Earth, but no big deal. Yes. <laughs> when you... Um, well, so it sounds like then you've, you know, from an early, from an early age, you've had a good background in archival work and historical work and then geographic work. Uh, and then, so how did you translate that into your studies when you were at Maryland? Do I recall correctly that you were particularly interested in Virginia and the Chesapeake? My first um, seminar in graduate school was an introduction to graduate study. And as part of that introduction, we needed to do a paper, and I had, I was thinking that I wanted to do something historical, and the professor in that class introduced me to Herman Fries, who had been a longtime archivist at the National Archives. Uh-huh. Um, basically, I decided in that, uh, for that project, I would try to figure out the historical geography of the Washington, D.C. area uh-huh. just before uh, the site was selected as the capital and the city was laid out. So I met Herman Fries, and he introduced me to some of the records at the National Archives. And I think that really sort of started an association of looking mm-hmm. at uh, historical records and uh, and trying to apply uh, this whole idea of historical uh, interpretation of past landscapes. Is this the same Herman Fries who develops the famous Fries map with the population? Data? Yes, yes. He, Holy cow. He, How uh, many famous people did you meet when you were <laughs> Herman, Herman was an amazing person, and he was... I think I think he studied at the University of California, Berkeley, mm-hmm. um, and he was very much an advocate of historical geography, and he was always pushing and advocating uh, for more historical geography. Yes, it was great learn getting to know him. Wow, golly! I mean, I I've seen maps using his data. And it's- well, you know, I think yes, I think they his maps still are probably the source for looking at population spread and density during the colonial period. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's amazing. Well, so you're already interested in ge- geography. You're interested in space. Big question is, and we'll talk more about what you're doing uh, here at Mount Vernon in recent months, but um, staying with your origin story, so to speak, when did you first become interested in maps? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I became interested as, I guess, when I was in elementary school. Okay. My family traveled uh, every summer from the time I was in first grade, uh, initially going places where we could go in one week and then two weeks and three weeks. So by the time I was finished with high school, I think I had traveled the whole way across the country. Wow. Uh, But... My father would sit down and plan the trips, the vacations during the winter, and I'd sit there and watch him Mm -hmm. look over his shoulder. 
by the time I was in fourth grade, I was the navigator on the vacations. <laughs> I had I had the road atlas and I had the routes he wanted to take, and I would be watching the maps and telling him where to make his turns. I'll be darned. And I, one of the other things I remember, I don't know exactly when I got this, but I got a puzzle of the United States where each state was an individual piece. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking, you know, I think I put those states in the puzzle in the order that they joined the Union. <laughs> so if, if there's a historical geographical nerd there, that's yeah. it. <laughs> You're already thinking right there, yeah. even at that early age. Well, then, what is your sense of the ways in which maps can help us understand the past in, in ways that, say, correspondence uh, can't necessarily, or newspapers, or some other kind of source that we use to tell historical stories? I, the maps, I think, give you the visual, uh, the visual evidence of any past geographical phenomena. But I think particularly when you look at boundaries and territorial mm. expansion, uh, that's where maps are, are excellent. I mean, you can describe a boundary. Let's say uh, with the Paris Peace Treaty, you can say, okay, the, the new United States gained all the territory west of the Appalachians to the Mississippi River. That is a textual statement. But can you visualize that? Sure. Y you need to look at a map and see exactly how much territory the United States was gaining at that point. And then to see what was in that mm -hmm. uh, territory at, point, at that point. I mean, there were some French, some Spanish settlements. There were many Native Americans living there. And the extent of the rivers and waterways that were there. So, I mean, all of that starts to come together. Yeah. And if you try to sit down in a couple pages and describe all of that and expect somebody to visualize it, uh, I think it would be very difficult. Well, then, and as you point out, too, with the, with the application of borders, then you sort of get a sense of how one person is defining space, but then how others might be contesting it. Exactly. Um, and, okay, the... The, um, the Mitchell map of North America, which was published in, uh, in the 1750s mm -hmm. initially, the title of the map is, uh, it sh talks about showing the dominions of the French and the British mm -hmm. uh, in North America. And you see what was being contested at the time of the French and Indian War. Now that map continues to be used for the next 25 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think there's some additions after the Revolutionary War. And then you see that those boundaries and those claims change. Look, it's the, the question of the motivation behind the map maker. I mean, what's, what's John Mitchell's objective in the 1750s when he creates that map? Why, why do people like him create maps in the first place? Well, if if I remember correctly, I think the um, the uh, the British government, the colonial office, was asking the colonies to provide uh, geographical descriptions and maps of the colonies and of the the British Empire. So I think these Mitchell, who did a map of the entire 
east part, eastern part of North America, mm-hmm. was responding to that type of request. But there were maps of Virginia by Fry and Jefferson and the other colonies as well. And each one of them is providing a good detailed picture of what is known mm-hmm. at that particular time. So I think it was... I think to answer your question simply, it was at the request of the British Colonial Office that uh, these geographic inventories were being made. Well, at the same time then, how do those maps reflect competing interests? I mean, I think we, we talked a little bit about, you know, French and British claims uh, during that period and then on the Metro map itself, but then how... How are people in the Home Office in London, or not the Home Office, because it's not the Home Office yet, but the Colonial Office in London, or, you know, even people like in Williamsburg using maps to advance some kind of either local or national or even imperial interest? I think if we look, let's take the Fry and Jefferson map. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it shows a very detailed picture of the Chesapeake. And at that point, the Chesapeake economy was based on tobacco and its export. So you get a good sense of what it meant for the ships coming to pick up the tobacco Mm -hmm. and to go around the colony and, you know, pick up these exports and to take them to London. So that emphasizes the, um, the current economy of the or the basic economy of Virginia and Maryland at that time. But the maps then also show what's happening in the western part of the territory and on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. Not in as much detail, but um, sort of showing the desire to keep moving, to keep moving west mm-hmm. and to get lands uh, uh, further uh, inland, and land was a critical resource for many of the uh, colonists. So, in that particular map, you're seeing uh, a reflection of the colonial economy, but you're also seeing how much geography is known to European settlers, but then how much they don't know uh, beyond the mountains. But you know what might be known then to indigenous peoples. Exactly, and. In many cases, you have to look at these maps closely Mm -hmm. to see the Native American presence. But in general, they are recorded, Mm -hmm. not in precise manner, but in sense you'll see the name of a particular group uh, spread over a large area, just sort of indicating that they are in this area Mm -hmm. and they occupy this area. Well, and and in a sense, that may be a little bit truer representation than I implied because the Native groups did not think of boundaries Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where they, the land they occupied. Uh, They claimed or occupied uh, large areas, and there was a movement within those areas. Mm -hmm. So their concept of boundaries was not the same as the colonial concept of boundaries. Sure. I mean, you can look at all the British colonists coming there. You have the boundaries between the colonies, 
Uh, let's, let's say William Byrd, uh, one of the things you remember most about William Byrd is his survey yeah. of the line between uh, Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, and that was an important survey. Mm-hmm. But then you have the boundaries relating to counties. Now, interestingly, I would say in terms of Virginia, I, I don't recall seeing a map showing the boundaries of the counties in Virginia until the late 18th century, uh, early 19th century. You see the names of counties, but not the boundaries. But the other type of boundary that's important are the boundaries of land holding. Sure, yeah. And um, since land was so important, uh, you needed to, you know, the extent of your boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a... um, a procedure in colonial Virginia, which was called processioning, where they would walk the boundaries of the properties within a county every several years so that the boundaries were reinforced. Oh, I'll be darned. That I did not know. And so then people like George Washington are out surveying lands as yeah. part of that process. Well, that. yeah, and look at George Washington's early career. Sure. Um, one of the first things he did as a teenager is he helped lay out the town of Alexandria, mm-hmm. and he created a map for his brother Lawrence, which showed the has a list of the earliest landowners in Alexandria. And then he goes on to become a surveyor of lands um, in uh, Fairfax County and the western part of Virginia and what is now West Virginia. So not only are you getting a sense of boundaries and how people are conceptualizing space, but then, you know, in that instance, when they're listing out the landholders, you're seeing, you know, who the members of the gentry are and how how much land they own and how powerful they are relative to each other. Exactly. So how do you use maps as a teaching tool? Because, and I want to talk a little bit about your time at the Leventhal Center in Boston here in a few minutes, but... You know, one of the one of the things you do as well is to help people understand how maps can be used in the classroom, both at the uh, collegiate level, but perhaps perhaps more importantly uh, in the K through twelve level. And that's an important point. I think uh, using maps in an educational uh, environment means adapting to the uh, the level of the students, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the work that we did with um, with the younger students, the K through 12, and let's say more general audiences, were to try to um, explain to them that map, the use of a map as a piece of evidence, and by that I mean, okay, who, what were the biases that mm-hmm. were associated with a map? Just we tend to think of maps as being a very accurate depiction of some geographical reality. Well, we have to remember every map is made by an individual. Somebody's probably paying for the map, so you want to please the person that's paying, who's paying for it, mm-hmm. or you're trying to sell the map and you want to uh, put things on that will help sell the map. So these are some of the types of things that we introduce to students is to think critically about the map Mm -hmm. as a document. Now, you began your career after graduate school was at the National Archives? That's exactly right, yes. And then you went on to the Library of Congress and eventually the Leventhal Center. So can you describe some of the work you were doing at 
these earlier institutions, and then we can talk more about the Leventhal Center here in a second. Okay. At the National Archives, I went in as a reference person. Um, so at that point, interesting how technology has changed, we would get many, many letters People would write letters asking, uh -huh. requesting information, and the reference archivist at that particular point had to find material that would answer the question. We'd write back and describe, oh, maybe three or four maps that answered their questions, and then we'd estimate the cost to make uh, photostatic copies. Now, I mean, just just think how things have changed since then. <laughs> yeah. Most of the inquiries are coming by email, and in many cases now you can refer the person to a website and say, here, you can look at the map and download the information. Mm -hmm. So there's been a real transformation. Okay, but basically at the National Archives, uh, I dealt with reference uh, and assisted with a few exhibits at that point. When I went on to the Library of Congress, I started out as the bibliographer. And one of the projects was to document uh, the literature that was being written about cartography and the history of cartography. So I spent maybe four or five years as bibliographer really getting an in-depth knowledge of journals and publications published nationally and internationally mm -hmm. and looking at the materials that pertain to cartography and the history of cartography. Um, and then I moved on to be the head of reference. So again, I'm getting back to my reference roots. Yeah. And then finally, I became a cartographic specialist, which basically meant... I worked more closely on individual projects, mm -hmm. particularly exhibits and publications, editing books, uh, editing uh, exhibit captions. Um, What's a good example of an exhibition that you did while you were at the Library of Congress? Hmm. I did a lot of interesting ones. <laughs> I bet so, yeah. You have a lot of maps there. Um, <laughs> Probably the most unusual and intriguing was an exhibit that looked at the German immigration into the United States. Oh. And I was working with the German-Dutch specialist uh, in the Library of Congress. And during this time, we were in the process of trying to acquire the 1507 Walsingmuller map, which was the first map to use the name America yeah. on the, uh, the American continents. So this was a very long process. But as part of this process, we prepared this exhibit on the German immigration to the United States. Wow. And the first place it was displayed was in Dresden, Germany. So oh, really? So, and this was after the, the fall of the wall, mm -hmm. but, okay, uh, it's a long story. <laughs> I mean, we did an, an earlier exhibit on Johann Jörg Kohl, who was a German geographer who came to the United States in the mid-19th century, uh -huh. and that exhibit went to Bremen, Germany, and this was a year after the wow. wall fell, and I had the chance to take the train to Berlin 
and visit the map libraries uh, in Berlin. The one in West Berlin was just overlooked the wall. Uh The one in East Berlin was just a couple blocks on the other side. So I got to walk past uh, the remnants of the Berlin Wall. Talk about borders. Yes, yes, and and then disappearance. But but then, I mean, getting to go back again to Dresden for this other exhibit uh, was really sort of a high point. Gosh, that's remarkable. How many maps are in the Library of Congress? I mean, I, oh I know my, it's, it's... The number keeps increasing. Yeah. I think they're saying 4 million. 4 million. And when you were still there, did they begin the process of digitizing a lot of those maps? Yes, they did. Uh, we At the very beginning, we were working on maps that had been described in bibliographies. Okay. And I... Uh, but the, the number, I, I don't remember how many are now digitized, but it's one of the larger digital collections yeah. of maps. It's extremely helpful, too. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. To be sure. But, okay, I guess one thing, though, I always like to caution people uh-huh. is, okay, there's a lot online, but there's even more that is not online. As we've discovered in recent <laughs> days, <laughs> working with the new Richard Brown map collection. Yes. Well, and then you became uh, the curator of maps at the Leventhal Map and Education Center at the Boston Public Library. Was that 2005? Yes, 2005 I started Mm -hmm. there. And can you tell us more about the Leventhal Center? It might not be familiar to most people. Okay, well, the Leventhal Center um, started as a dream of Norman Leventhal, who was a developer Mm -hmm. in the Boston area, and he... Um, was also a map collector starting when he was in his 70s. And he had a collection that's focused on Boston, Massachusetts, New England, and he had a number of world maps as well. But in his, when he was in his 80s, he decided he wanted to do, he wanted to provide a home for mm-hmm. his map collection. And he looked around at a number of institutions trying to determine where he would donate his collection. He decided on the Boston Public Library because its motto, which is inscribed above the door as you walk in, is free to all. And he Mm. wanted his maps to be made available to the school children and the people of Boston Primarily because his family was an immigrant family coming into the Boston area uh, in the early 20th century, and he earned his education in Boston at Boston Latin School and then went on to MIT, and uh, he, he was very, very supportive and very proud of being a Boston resident. But to continue with his story, it was his desire that his maps be used in an educational environment. Now, the map collection that was already at the Boston Public Library was a very important collection, but it had been neglected for maybe 40 to 50 years. And... uh, the oldest materials were maintained by the Rare Book Division, mm-hmm. and people could look at those. But uh, there was nothing beyond 
the old standard uh, cataloging cards. Sure. So there was very little um, knowledge of what was in the collection. Mm -hmm. Okay, while I was there, we had a number of objectives. First of all was to get control of the maps that were at the Boston Public Library. Okay. So we initiated a program of cataloging the material, and very shortly after I came there, the library set up a digital lab, which was based on some monies that came from a flood in the 90s. It was called flood money, flood insurance <laughs> money. But the money, some of the money that was left over was set up to, for the digital lab. And we in the MAP Center were far enough along with cataloging our material and knowing that we wanted our materials digitized, mm -hmm. that we were some of the, f we had some of the first materials that the digital lab at the Boston Public Library was able to digitize. Nice. So, probably within the first year or two, we started a digital a digital program. And that's that's pretty early still. I mean, early yes. 2000s. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of that going on yes. yet. So, I mean, we knew at that point we wanted to. Digit, we wanted to catalog the material, we wanted to digitize it, and it was in several different locations. So we wanted to bring it together. Mm -hmm. uh, and s f when I first got there, we were located in a temporary headquarters in the office area and not really a good stack area. Yeah. But eventually we uh, were able to get our own space, which was renovated to house the older maps and to display the older maps. And we developed a program to reach out to school children to display the maps, um, and it just sort of kept evolving from there. Wow. And while you were there, too, you also did a number of exhibitions, yes. some that even traveled the country at various That's points. That's right. Exhibitions were an important part of outreach. Uh, initially, we did a major exhibit in the library's main gallery, and we did that every maybe three or four years. So the first exhibit we did was on world maps. Mm -hmm. Then we did one on bird's eye views relating to Boston and its environs. Then we did the Revolutionary War. No, we did the Civil War. Then we did the Revolutionary War. Ah. And the final one that I worked on was looking at the 19th century. And so what do you imagine that patrons took away from these exhibitions when they saw them? I mean, did you sneak downstairs to see how people were checking out the exhibitions? or? Well, I don't know that I really looked at that too much. I mean, obviously... If you look at the sequence of exhibits that we did, mm -hmm. we were basically using maps to illustrate different aspects of history, particularly American history. Mm -hmm. And so part of the objective was to bring in school groups to help them with those particular uh, understandings. Oh, I see. So in a lot of ways, it fit right in with curricular development. Yes, yes. You mentioned earlier uh, doing digital work. One of the other things that you did while you were at the BPL and at the Leventhal Center was to help construct this digital portal, which is an aggregation of maps from how many different, 10 different partner okay, institutions? At least 10, 10 different uh, institutions. 
Um, about the time we were start thinking about the portal, um, the library wanted to identify what they called collections of distinction. Mm -hmm. Because the rare book department uh, and the uh, print department have some outstanding collections. So in the MAP Center, we identified four collections, one being uh, the regional focus of Boston, Massachusetts, and New England. The second was the Revolutionary War period. The third was nautical charts. And the fourth was urban mapping. And about that time is when we had decided to work on the exhibit for the Revolutionary War. Okay. And as part of that project, we set up the concept of bringing together digital images from other collections. And it was about this time that the folks at the British Library were looking for assistance in funding the digitization of the King George III's collection. Oh, okay. And yeah. one of our patrons was able to help fund the digitization of the manuscript maps in the King George collection that related to the Revolutionary War period. Nice. So we have those maps, we, those digital images online. We have the manuscript maps from the Library of Congress in that project. Um, and a number of other institutions, the, um, the, um, the uh, American Antiquarian Society, mm -hmm. uh, I think we have some from Harvard, although I don't think Harvard had all of theirs digitized. Uh, but it's a wide range of materials, plus Richard Brown's collection. Uh, Richard was on our board of directors, mm -hmm. and since his interest was the Revolutionary War, this was of major interest to him. So in many ways, we brought together digital images of maps from numerous collections. And what's amazing, you start to see the interrelation of materials. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, I think for me the prime example is the British uh, um, engineer Richard Williams. Uh -huh. um, he was in Boston during the British occupation of Boston, and we generally knew his work by one printed map, which showed Boston and vicinity just before the British left. But the British Library had a series of panoramic views mm -hmm. done by Richard Williams. Richard Brown had another set of those images. The Library of Congress had a couple items by Richard Williams. So here's this one individual that probably most people don't recognize as a major map maker. And we were able to bring together these images in one portal. Well, and I can vouch, too, that I've seen Richard Williams's work, because we have some of it here, as you say, and then I've seen some of it online. You, you get a first-hand visual perspective on the opening moments of the American Revolution. I've never seen anything like it. Um, it it's incredible. Yes, yeah. And so, speaking of Richard Brown, and we've we've talked uh, a little bit about Mr. Brown on the program before, and about the Mac uh, about the maps. We had Max Edelson on the program a few weeks ago. But Ron, one of the the great uh, pleasures of of acquiring that map collection is that meant it, it meant that uh, 
we get to have you as a consultant uh, for the last few months, helping us to understand the uh, scope of this collection, but also how best to care for it and how best to catalog it. Can you talk a little bit more about um, Mr. Brown's maps and what makes them significant? This His collection is a good representative selection of maps pertaining to this the period from the French and Indian War through the Revolutionary War. He has most of the major published maps that pertain to this period. Uh, as I've been going through inventorying it, I realize he has depicted most of the battles. Um, so I think for scholars coming mm-hmm. to Mount Vernon, they will have a good map base for their studies. Obviously, his collection doesn't have everything, sure, yeah. but it has some of the best maps. I mean, I mentioned before, these maps that were done of the colonies in the 1750s and 1760s, he has the one for Georgia and South Carolina. He has the one for North Carolina. He has the Chesapeake. He has the New England one. So you get a good, broad geographical background. You Most of the battles are represented. And in terms of publishers, he has maps by British publishers. He has maps by French publishers, uh, the few American publishers. Um, but then there are also a few German, and I mm-hmm. think there's one, um, is it Swedish? I think, I think there's, there's a Sweden one, there, yeah. There's a Swedish map. So you get the sense of how the people in Europe were viewing the war at this particular mm-hmm. time. And I think most of us who grow up in the U.S. just think of the Revolutionary War as an event that took place on this continent, and we don't look at it in the con- in the international context. So by looking at these maps by the other major countries, uh, you get a better sense of that international yeah. perspective. Yeah. And Richard Brown's collection includes a number of manuscript maps that are basically unique, and you won't find any place else. For example, the map by Charles Blaskowitz of yes. New York uh, City and vicinity. Uh, what does that measure? Four, oh. feet, four feet by four feet or something? Oh, like I think that. it's bigger than that. It's, it's, that thing is huge. I mean, the detail that's on that map is amazing. Yeah. So, yes, I think this is a stellar collection, and I'm glad to see that it'll get recognition and use. And we'll definitely post images uh, on the site or the show page for you know the Blaskowitz map. And as a reminder to folks, I mentioned this earlier, the Blaskowitz map is on display here in our education center uh, at Mount Vernon. The map uh, exhibition of which it is a part will be on display through August the 12th, but the Blaskowitz map is coming down early uh, because it has been on display uh, for some time before, and so there are various rules and regulations governing how long a, a, uh, a paper object can stay up. So if you want to see this map in person, get thee to Mount Vernon uh, if you can in the next couple of months. Um, Ron, I guess we should close by asking you, what's your favorite map? You've probably, worked, you've probably looked at God knows how many maps over the course of your career. What's, <laughs> what's the one, or maybe two to be fair, uh-huh. that stand out in your mind constantly? Oh, there, there are numerous maps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
One of the one, okay, one of my favorites in Norman Leventhal's collection uh-huh. um, was it's a it's a map of the world. Um, it, the cartographer was Verheer. I forget the exact date. It's in the early 1600s, but it shows the world in three segments. Most maps at that time were done with double hemispheres. Okay. So this one has like three gores. And it was meant to be an historical map because it was showing various historical events. For example, it shows the roots of mar- various explorers at at time like Vasco da Gama, mm-hmm. etc., but it also had a religious connotation because it has little scenes of the creation, Noah's flood. Uh, but the other thought was, okay, it's in three parts, which was sort of a trick tip, which was sort of like the altar pieces uh, in the uh, Gothic and the Renaissance churches oh, when see. it was done. And fairly unusual map. And, okay, if I have time, another thing. (laughs) We'll do one more. (laughs) Another, I guess another map that will remain one of my favorites is Samuel Champlain's 1613 map of the northeastern part of North America. And that's because uh, shortly after I arrived in Boston, we discovered that, or Forbes Smiley, the map dealer, was arrested for... Uh, stealing maps at Yale. And during the course of that investigation, we determined there were maps missing at the Boston Public Library. Uh, And one of the maps that was missing was Champlain's 1613 map taken out of Champlain's travels. When when the FBI recovered the, uh, the maps that were stolen, there was one copy of this map Three institutions were missing the map. Mm-hmm. I determined the one they recovered was not the Boston Public Libraries because we had a four by five negative of the map before it was taken, and there was a tear across the bottom third oh. that was very obvious uh, on the photograph. And that first map that was discovered did not have that tear. Ten years later, a dealer. Uh, was advertising another copy of the Champlain map. I had a colleague say, you better look closely at that map, and I did, and I could see evidence of the tear. Even even in the dealer's catalog, I could see it, and I eventually went and looked at the actual item, took my negative with me, plus digital copies that had been blown up, and we proved that that was the Boston Public Library copy. Holy cow. So that map came back to the uh, collection. Uh, normally it would have gone back to Rare Book Division uh-huh. because it was a map from a book. I see. But the Rare Book Division did transfer the book to the map center, and we made a special box to hold the book yeah. and to keep the map in a nice mat. So, yes, that's probably... The one map I'll remember the most. I hope you had some cake that day when you <laughs> figured that out. Oh. Well, Ron, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, I suppose we should uh, get back to work. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.